0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? I'm good,
1: Carrie. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, Hi. Hi. Hi, hi. Hi. hi, hi. Realize I said that in a weird order this time. I don't know why. I said Um, my introduction weirdly. uh, You did a little bit. I'm gonna blame you. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm sad that it's now very thoroughly dark when we do our recording in the evenings. Mm. Like that's definitely something I'm struggling with a little bit. But other than that, I'm good. Um, It's been an extremely busy few weeks of events and radio programs, um, which has meant I've had to read an enormous pile of books. And they were all really good so i'm feeling full to the brim of good literature actually which is a fabulous feeling that is Um, fabulous yeah no really good so much to think about um and then today was my first day back to my final edits on my own book which is terrifying um but you know what carrie it is not as bad as i thought it was
0: (laughs) so that's good. (laughs) It's <laughs> yeah. shocking to me that what you thought was a pile of trash at one point is actually very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Very good's going a bit far. Let's see. Let's see. But how are you? How are you? I'm good. We're recording this right after the Frankfurt Book Fair, where I've just returned from, and it's been three years. And so wow. it was. it was really nice to go and see editors and just hang out with people and talk about with books and be surrounded by people from all over the world who care about and edit books and sell books. Um, I was also reminded how weird book fairs are. You know, we're sitting at tables all day and editors just rotate through and every 30 minutes and we pitch them our books. I mean, that's crazy. It's such a weird format. It sounds like like a speed dating. It is. It, it basically is. Wow. And it's also amazing when, you know, much like with speed dating, when you really don't have chemistry. if a, <laughs> I've had editors be like, I only do books about food and trees. And I'm like, I don't have anything for you. And they'll be like, okay. <laughs> Great. So basically,
1: if people can be as upfront as possible, yeah. right at the start, just like with dating, that's
0: useful. Or like there are certain French editors who you'll pitch them a book, book and they'll be like, not for France. <laughs> Wow. It's very harsh. No, mais no. non, non. France, But yeah, it was it was great. Um, but onto the show, we are going to be talking to the writer Ian Lee, whose latest novel, The Book of Goose, is about an intense friendship between two girls in rural post-war France. When agnes and Fabienne write a book of stories together, a simple lie about the book's authorship sends Anya's life in an unexpected direction so in honor of their act of literary creation and obfuscation, we wanted to devote our show to the idea of literary deception. When it comes to fiction, why are people so obsessed with authenticity and so appalled by literary deception? Does it matter who tells a story? And what do novels that confront these ideas have to tell us? But before we get started asking all of those questions, can you tell our listeners a little more about Ian Octavia?
1: I sure can, Carrie. Ian Lee is the author of six books of fiction and two books of nonfiction, including Where Reasons and Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, and other places. Her accolades are many and include the Guardian First Book Award, the Sunday Times Short Story Award, a Wyndham Campbell Prize, a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Penn Jean Steen Award, and the 2022 Penn Malamud Award for excellence in the short story. She teaches at Princeton University and lives in Princeton, New Jersey. Also, a quick reminder that we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content every month, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Lit Friction. You will get monthly exclusive minisodes, as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. We have had some really fun topics lately, including book lists, during which we had some genuine literary friction, and clothes, which was an absolute riot. So if you want to have more of us wanging on in your ears,
0: you can find it there. You can also find a list of the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now stay tuned for our interview with Ian Lee, a discussion of authorship and deception in literature, and finally our usual reading recommendations. So slip on your favorite disguise and your fake mustache and listen in for the next hour of literary friction. I prefer a pink wig. (laughs) You can your favorite disguise, a pink wig. I'll be there with my mustache. thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction.
2: Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to
0: start with a reading from the book of Goose. Could you set it up for us, please?
2: Yes, I think I shall just read the first couple pages so you can have a sense of this voice in your head before we, you know, start talking about the book. You cannot cut an apple with an apple. You cannot cut orange with orange. You can, if you have a knife, cut an apple or an orange. Or slice open the underbelly of a fish. Or, if your hands are steady enough and the blade is sharp enough, sever an umbilical cord. You can slap a book. There are different ways to measure depths, but not many readers measure a book's depth. With a knife, making a cut from the first page all the way down to the last. Why not, I wonder? You can hand the knife to another person, betting with yourself how deep a wound he or she is willing to inflict. You can be the inflictor of the wound. One half orange plus another half orange do not make a full orange again. And that is where my story begins. An orange that did not think itself good enough for a knife. An orange that never dreamed of turning itself into a knife. Cut and be cut. Neither interested me back then. My name is Agnes, but that is not important. You can go into a orchard with a list of names and write them on the oranges. Françoise and Pierre and Diane and Louise. But what difference does it make? What matters to an orange is its orangeness. The same with me. My name could have been Clementine or Ordet or Henrietta. But so? An orange is just an orange. As a doll is a doll. Don't think that once you name a doll, it is different from other dolls. You can bathe it and close it and feed it empty air and put it to bed with lullabies you imagine a mother should be singing to a baby. All the same, the doll, like all dolls, cannot even be called dead as it was never alive. The name you should pay attention to in this story is Fabian. Fabian is not an orange or knife for a singer of lullabies but she can make herself into any one of those things. Well, she once could. She's dead now. The news of her death arrived in the letter from my mother, the last of my family still living in San Remy. Though my mother was not writing particularly to report the death, but the birth of her own first great-grandchild. Had I remained near her, she would have questioned why I have not given birth to a baby to be added to her collection of grandchildren. This is one good thing about living in America. I'm too far away to be her concern. But long before my marriage, I stopped being her concern. My fame took care of that. America and fame. They are equally useful if you want freedom. From your mother.
0: Thank you. I love that opening, and actually, it was really great to hear you read it again after I'd read the novel because it takes on so much new meaning, yes. <laughs> which I think is is always a good sign. And also, I was just noticing the violence of it and the harshness oh, of it. Yes. Um, and I wonder if actually you could just start talking about how the story of these two girls. Came to you in all of its violence and harshness, and
2: yes, I know <laughs> strangeness. So, so this, yes, as you said, the story, the novel is set in post World War II rural France, you know, in the countryside that right after World War II. It's poverty, it's death everywhere—dead animals, dead people—and so the original seed of the novel came from review I read. Elizabeth Bowen, the Irish writer, she wrote a review in the 1950s. She reviewed four French child prodigies. They all published books. The oldest one was 15. And when I was reading that review, I was fascinated by one, not them, was a countryside girl from France. And she appeared, you know, in history as this great child prodigy novelist. And she wrote two novels. She became international celebrity you know time magazine sent photographers to follow her around but fairly quickly she disappeared from history and anytime you know someone disappears from history i think that's always a good moment for a novelist to come in to make up the story (laughs) sort of to make up for the loss and i came in so this is a long answer to your question i came in actually with the idea of writing about this period, this story, but not with one girl, but with two girls, I was interested in writing about it. a girlhood friendship. It's interesting because also you have this
1: friendship, and I want to get into talking about Fabienne in a minute because she is such a forceful character. But before we get there, you know, at the heart of this novel is really a literary deception as well as a friendship, right? Yes. Agnes and Fabienne are best friends and Fabienne writes a book that Agnes puts down into words. And then it's Fabienne who decides that only Agnes will take the credit. So it's a kind of folie a deux, right? They create mm-hmm. together. Yes. But I, I wanted to talk to you about this question of authorship, because the whole time I was reading, I was thinking, you know, when you have very intense friendships, when you're young, you kind of co-author each other's lives yes. in writing and also in living. And I wondered why you wanted to get right into the like nitty-gritty of that connection.
2: Yes, I think you're exactly right. You know, I think friendship during a specific, you know, period of childhood, I was thinking about say between twelve and fourteen. You know, the children just start to feel the world, but they also I think friendship that and during that period. The two friends, as you said, they're co-authors of their lives. They really make up the entire world for each other. And I have seen that in many, you know, childhood friendships because this is the period of time when they can make up their own stories. They make up their own identities and they also, you know, make up each other's stories. And for Fabienne and Agnes, it's even more extreme than that because they grew up in the countryside, they grew up in poverty, they did not have food, they did not have toys, they did not have anything but each other. And as you said, it's a literary deception, it's a hoax. Not only did they make up the entire story, but they went out to the world to sell the story to the world, sort of as their little girl's rebellion against a world that's never been nice or kind to them.
0: Yeah, and it's this question of authenticity is so interesting to me. And it, it really made me think as I was reading the novel because so so many people that then read this book are obsessed with whether a country peasant would be able to write it. And a lot of them think, you know, oh, she was helped along by this, you know, kind of Educated postmaster who wrote it with them, when actually the deception is something quite different from that. I mm-hmm. wonder why you think people are so obsessed with authenticity, especially when it comes to fiction. Like, why is this something that we return to and we want to get to the bottom of and we we don't want to be duped by?
2: You know, what you just said it's exactly right. People are obsessed with the authenticity of fiction. You know, in a way, there's a little irony there because fiction, by definition, is something made up. Fiction is, you know, make-believe. But as readers, we both believe and we want to make-believe to be true. I think that's part of human nature, to be closer to something. You know, whether it's emotional truth or factual truth. But I think truth rather than fact, often comes up in the discussion of fiction's authenticity. So in this case, I think Fabian and Agnès, as you said, they know their life. They're just writing about their life. And of course, you know, people in Paris, people in England, people would have these questions about, can they make up these stories? Can, can they be the real authors? Well, yes, they actually can. They not only can, they have told the stories. You know, beautifully in their own way.
1: And also when the book is published, the book within the book is published, Agnes is treated as though everything she and Fabienne created was real from her own life, right? Like everyone right, right. just collapses the distance between the <laughs> author and the creation, which is something that happens to authors of all kinds. But I feel like it especially happens to female authors. I, um And I wonder if, uh, yeah if you would sort of agree that it's something that feels kind of
2: gendered almost Absolutely I think you know that's such an acute observation for instance like Agnes one the book is published she goes out to Paris and she goes out to England and people really think she has written a real portrayal of French countryside and their American occupation. And I think you're right. I don't know why, but I do think, you know, of course I myself have encountered that when we write fiction, people always want to know which part of it's your life. You know, has this happened to you? It's as uh, still to say imagination is not enough. It has to be confirmed or validated by Real thing or real happenings.
0: And I wonder, along those lines, what kind of authenticity you do strive for when you're writing fiction?
2: I think going back to what kind of truth one wants from one's fiction, I think for myself, it's emotional truth more than factual truth. So, you know, I I think that sounds sort of vague. So, to give you a, a concrete example, so the story starts with Agnius describing oranges. You know, if you cut an orange into half, you cannot have a full orange again. And that orange, that image, actually came from my research. From you know, I read a Frenchman's account. So he was a child in the French countryside when American occupation started post-World War II. And in his account, he said, back then, people in his village... They had never seen the fruit, orange. And it's American soldiers who brought the fruit, orange, to the neighborhood. But he went on to say not only had they never seen orange, the fruit, they had never seen anything in the orange color, in that vivid color. And I just thought, you know, when you do that, I did not have that experience, but I had a similar experience growing up in China What in you know, 1980, early in nineteen eighties. I grew up in Beijing, which was a very grey, black, green, you know, dark place. And one day, this was one China just opened its door. One day I saw an American, you know, grad student in the street doing inline skating. I've never seen someone inline skating. So it was like someone just floated past me in the street. But he had a neon green backpack on his back. Growing up in China, up until then, I've never seen the color neon green. So I always remember the moment seeing that green, such vivid green. And that was how Fabian and Agnes felt when they saw orange in their life.
1: That intensity comes into the language throughout the whole book as well. And I think there's something about being at that stage of life these teenage girls or preteen just at that moment of kind of crossing the boundary over into puberty. And mm-hmm. it is such an intense period, isn't it? And, yes. and a period of really intense intellectual development as well, which I think is another thing that I enjoyed so much about this book, that you treat the intellectual connection between these two girls really, really profoundly. Um, and we actually recently did a show where we interviewed Lauren Elkin, who'd just translated Simone de Beauvoir's
2: novel, oh, yes. The Inseparables. I, have yes. you read it? I It's on my to-be-read list because I really like the title, Inseparables. It's fabulous, isn't it? But honestly, <laughs> I
1: feel like yeah. it would be a very interesting conversation between The uh, Inseparables and The Book of Goose because yes. they are charting, in a very, very different way, but the similar territory of this intense friendship and this intense intellectual development right. and connection between these two girls. But I am, um, yeah, do you feel like that's a particularly ripe, territory for fiction.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I think in a way, as you said, the, the friendship during one period of development, it's so intense. You know, the, the, the line between the two people, the contour between the two people actually vanishes. They actually become the one, you know, larger being. So they use each other's languages, right? They, they make up language to make their world full. And again, it happens pre- you know, adolescence. So it, there's something sexual about that, but there's some, also something very innocent. And as you said, it's also intellectual because it's really not only about their physical beings, but they're also. It's also about their minds, how they expand their minds together into sort of a bigger mind. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. At one point. Agnes describes herself and Fabienne. She describes herself as a whetstone to Fabienne's knife, which is, you know, leads me on to actually wanting to talk to you about the spiky, edgy (gasps) young woman, Fabienne, (laughs) because she is kind of embodies everything in in the good and the bad that I wished I could have been as a teenager. She is so un tethered in a way
2: (laughs) was she fun to write oh yes absolutely you know i like what you said you know that edgy and i also think you're right she's you know she's wild she's unruly she's also you know ruthless she's cruel but also i do appreciate i think she has the kind of imagination and she also has a kind of purity that you know, if you look at it, she wrote a book. She has written a book, but she doesn't really care about claiming the authorship because for her, there's something higher than just claiming the credit of having written a book. She's rebellious, but also subversive. But she also does she does read people very closely and acutely aware of what people want from her. At some point, she says to Agnes, you know, when we write a book... Whatever people want, we don't give to them. So I, I would say she is actually one of the most fascinating and fun characters to work with. You know, I, I almost feel that when I was writing about her, I was just following her lead.
0: And it's so interesting to me that this novel is narrated by Anya's, and it almost couldn't be narrated by Fabienne. We need, you know, she is like, she's almost a cipher for her. And, right. and sometimes the way that you were talking about writing Fabienne, I think is how Agnes feels sometimes that she almost right. she almost becomes a mouthpiece for Fabienne. And I wonder, did you always want it to be narrated by Agnes? Did you always need her to be the the narrator of the story?
2: Yes. It was very clear to me from the beginning that Agnes would be the narrator. You know, she is between the two of them, she's less, you know, she's a little passive, but she's also muddy. I think Fabienne is so wild and imaginative, but Fabian is crystal clear to me. You know, her violence, her imagination, her subversiveness, everything is clear, but Agnes has her own strength, but I think her strength comes from her sort of always wanting to be part of the experience of being with Fabian, You know, in fact, when Agnes is launched in Paris, she's able to hold, you know, <laughs> that position of a child prodigy very well, and she can perform well. But she has an ambivalence about her own strengths. So she tones it down. She wants to always to be with Fabian, And that kind of narrator, to me, is more interesting because of her muddiness. I always think of her as a muddy girl you know her mind is a little (laughs) muddy and I like that
0: yeah I like that too and I think it really works in the first person too because you see her you see the muddiness coming through her struggling with her own telling of the story and her own narrative and her own needs and wants and um I read in another interview something that you said about the first person being a breakthrough for you and I wonder if you could talk about that like what's what yeah. was what changed when you started writing in the first person?
2: Right. So you know, the longer history is I used never to use first person because I feel when I was younger, when I was first, when I first started writing, I tended to hide myself behind characters, behind third person narrators. So there was some security in that. There was a little bit of safety in hiding yourself or entirely erasing yourself from a book and yet knowing, you know, the self was there. But I, I, I think as one grows older or as one, mat- one matures, sometimes, you know, one can change one's mind. So I feel that I have changed my position. The first person narrator, I, I wrote a nonfiction book in first person narrator called Dear Friend from My Life. I write to you in your life, which directly... Dealt with my own life. And I think I often say, you write a book to open space for more books. You write a book to make rooms for other books. So that nonfiction and first person narrator really opened up the space for me. It's almost as though I am still hiding, but I'm hiding in just in open air in plain light. You can see me, you cannot see me. There's no desire to entirely erase myself in writing.
0: That's beautiful. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And uh, on a completely different note, a lot of this book is set at a finishing school in England where Agnes goes after her novel is published. and there is a very rich tradition of novels set in boarding schools and Mm -hmm. particularly boarding schools for girls. And as I was reading, I was just thinking, this is such a good setting for a novel.
2: (laughs) And I wonder,
0: wonder, like, what, why did you want to go there? And were you thinking about those other books in that tradition as well?
2: Right. It's funny because the original seed of this novel, that girl author did also go to English boarding school. It's very convenient to just follow her trajectory to go to English finishing school. But as you said, I do think there are like a a lot of great books set in, in boarding school. I think partly that age, when you gather any group of girls, there's plenty of drama right there's plenty of opportunity <laughs> for each girl to be themselves and also to be others to want to be others so I particularly I was thinking about you know the prime of Miss Jean Brody that's not mm. in the boarding school but it was still in the girls school that age so and also I read some of uh I think her name is Angela Brazil
0: <laughs> oh I d- I yeah I worked on a book that talked about her. She writes these amazing like boarding school exactly. novels that were yeah. incredibly popular in their time. B-
2: back then, before yeah. there there was YA novels and her she she wrote these books set in all sorts of big houses around in Eng- English countryside. It was fascinating. So I think it's a good opportunity for my character, for Agnius, to go out to the world, you know. And the other thing is, I would say I love Fabian Agnes so much that I, you know, had I had a great, you know, dream, it was for them to stay always together. But as a novelist, you cannot have that. You know, if your characters wanted to stay together, you sort of have to part them, right? You know, to (laughs) separate them. That's, That's the bad thing about novelists is you never give your characters what they want. So I think... A natural way to separate them is for Agnes to go out to the world, to experience the world when Fabian stays back in the countryside. So the English finishing school is a natural step for Agnes to be launched into the the bigger world.
1: And it also allows you to engage with this uh, idea that those kind of elite or so-called elite institutions have, right, where they shape their charges into right. a particular product almost. And I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but there is this character, this headmistress, who is utterly terrifying. And also to me, as like a, a, a kid who grew up in England, I, I met teachers like her. <laughs> I'm <laughs> a sh- I'm afraid to say. And they, you know, it it was a very um, a very chilling kind of description of a particular kind of kind of class Mm. Uh, narrative that is very English in my mind, um, but yeah, could you talk a little bit about her and what inspired her?
2: Right. So, so you, I'm so glad you said you recognize her. I feel like a lot of my English readers—they <laughs> they all seem to have an experience of a Mrs. Townsend. They would say <laughs> <laughs> clearly she is a quintessential, you know, English character, British character, right? So yeah.
1: She's an archetype for sure. For I know,
2: sure, I know. So yes, and I think, in a way, I you know back to the original story, it's a literary hoax. Anytime a literary deception, literary hoax happens, it's because some people want to gain something out of it. And Mrs. Townsend, and you know, along with the Parisian editors and publishers, they all want to gain something. They want to gain something. But they want to manipulate and exploit these. Young girls, and so Mrs. Townsend is a very concrete example of that. I also like that actually Agnes is also exploiting Mrs. Townsend. So I think it's it's always interesting to see who, or as a novelist, it's always interesting for me to see who has power, who has real power, and what kind of power you know dynamics exists between two characters. So so Mrs. Townsend is you know, chilling as she is. She's also, a, she's a very fun character to write.
0: I love how you talk about your characters, Um, you know, being fond of them and being sad that you have to do things to them. And I <laughs> wonder, you know, do they stay with you after you write a novel? What's your relationship like with your characters throughout your
2: life? Right. That's such a good question. I, you know, sometimes I feel bad for my family because I always feel like... At any given moment, I live with a set of characters in my head, but they are—they're <laughs> not visible to my family. They do not <laughs> know they share my life with another set of people. So, so I do, I do. So I think it, I have been told before that I talk about my characters like real people because they are real to me. They're really—they live their lives in my head. You know, I feel that. I'm sad for them. I'm happy for them. Sometimes I'm baffled. Sometimes I get into argument with them, really just, or fight. So I have a very, (laughs) I do think I have a real relationship with all my characters. But with Agnes and Fabian, I would say this pair means, especially just probably more than any characters I've ever written. I feel that, you know, they, they have said things, they have done things that, not only they have wounded each other, they have wounded me too while I have been working on the novel.
1: Mm,
0: I can totally feel that. <laughs> the last question I want to ask you about is about the style of your prose, um, mm-hmm. which in this book, it strikes me as incredibly precise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a feature of a lot of what you write, even if the voice changes, you know, this right. precision of language. Right. Right. And I wonder if you think that about your prose and if that's something you strive for. And, and if so, you know, how, how do you achieve that? How do you come to that?
2: Right. I do. I'm, I'm so happy you're mentioning that because precision is possibly one of the most important things or if not the most important thing for myself in writing. I think, you know, precision means clarity to me. It means efficiency. Also, it means every word has to be a word, you know. I think cliches are cliches. because they're ready-made words. And people use them, like circulate them all the time, just like cash. To me, I want to be, to, I want every word I put down as a real word, which means I spend a lot of time just looking at words. I look up words in the dictionaries, and I cut words out and see if I can live with, you know, a few live with fewer words for anything. And there's something very sharp about if you can. It feels sharp and clear when you can write precisely. And that is my dream, just always to write precisely.
0: Well, Ian Lee, may you always write precisely. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much.
2: I, I don't <laughs> talk precisely. I know that. <laughs> you, you
0: actually do. You do. Yeah, I disagree.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. I, I, I thank you. That's, a, that's the best wish for, for me as a writer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on our show today.
2: Um, thank you so much for having me.
0: episode is sponsored by Picador. Many episodes ago, we spoke about books that take us on the road, books that roam with intrepid protagonists that take us on a journey of discovery. But what about the novels that subvert the the on-the-road narrative? That redefines it as a means of rediscovery, retracing past memories that ask us to question what has been lost and forgotten over time. That raises the question about what we really owe the past and the people that inhabited it. If you're looking for an on-the-road, Ferrante-esque novel that peels back the layers to reveal the darker truths of friendship, then look no further than Lana Bosta sitchs Catch the Rabbit, out now in paperback.
1: Catch the Rabbit tells the story of two childhood best friends, Sara and Layla, who haven't seen each other in years. But when Sara, now living in Dublin, receives a call from Layla telling her she needs to come home to Bosnia, she can't say no. What begins as a road trip across post-war Bosnia soon turns into a journey through the past. The two women set out to find Layla's brother who disappeared towards the end of the war, presumed dead by those left behind. The two friends believe he is still alive. A story about changing friendships, the limits of memory and the lies we tell ourselves about who we are and where we're from with surprising twists and turns that will leave you gripped until the very end.
0: Described as Lewis Carroll meets Elena Ferrante, Olivia Sujic has called it a confident, carefully drawn portrait of female friendship in the fallout of war, and Alexander Heman has hailed this smart, passionate novel, an announcement of a major talent. Awarded the European Union Prize for Literature in 2020, Catch the Rabbit is a stunning, moving novel about the effects of conflict and trauma and what happens when we put places and friends on pedestals and then are surprised when they fall off out now in paperback and available from your local independent bookshop. So our theme today is literary deception. And I want to start by asking a question about authenticity, Um, because authenticity is kind of the flip side of deception, isn't it? And this relates to the Book of Goose, where we talked about how people are just obsessed with finding out whether Agnes actually wrote this book of stories, Les Enfants Heureuses. And I think that reflects how people really are in life. Why is authorial authenticity so important in fiction to people and i wonder as a personal question do you think you'd be upset if you found out a fiction writer wasn't who they said they were
1: yeah i mean it's interesting isn't it i think it's mostly it's about humiliation right like people hate to feel humiliated and people feel humiliated if they feel that they've been conned or duped so like i was thinking what would I feel if Elena Ferrante turned out to be a man? And, like, I think I would be very surprised. I would be very surprised because her writing is so sensitive to the complexities of a very embodied female experience in a way that I have rarely, rarely found male authors able to pull off, which is not to say that they never have done because it's not true. And it's never great to generalize, but I think on the whole, but you know, if I think back to my early experiences of reading novels, really when I was first kind of becoming an independent reader, honestly, I barely paid attention to the author's name at all. And like, this was all pre-internet, so I didn't look them up. I had no idea who they were. I was reading the book for the characters and that was it. And the characters were who I had a relationship with. So it was kind of only once I got to school and started learning how to read, you know, with context and understanding of social context and political context and historical context that I started paying attention to who actually wrote the books that I read. Mm. And I think it's... a. I think it's a question that lands differently depending on how you're choosing to read. I have ambivalent feelings about the whole thing, and I would never be so disingenuous to say that I wouldn't be upset if I found out a fiction writer was who they said they weren't, who they said they were. Also, I
0: wish I would be un- not upset. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Well, I think Ian gave a very generous response to a version of this question, which is that it's just, it's a very human impulse to kind of want to know the truth and understand the truth behind something and not want to be deceived. And that's part of it, right? Like we need to be kind to ourselves and be like, of course you kind of want to understand if you're being tricked or conned. And you're right that it shouldn't be important. But I also think when commercial interests come into this, which they often do with books that are being sold and bought by people it does become about the author in some way and i see this as somebody who works in the industry you know it shouldn't be about what an author looks like or what their biography is and all of that but it so often is you know in the book of goose you know everyone's so excited that not only is anya a peasant girl but she's a very attractive peasant girl and that's part of what is uh, you know appealing about her story and also i think you know where this becomes a little bit trickier is is this question about like what are people allowed to write about and why can they write about it? And I think it is, you know, even in fiction, it's considered a lot more authentic if somebody has some kind of connection to the material. And in fact, you know, if people don't have a connection to the material, I think there are a lot of people arguing right now, maybe you should think about whether you can write about that. Um, And so I can understand why, I don't know, it's, it's complicated.
1: Yeah. I think it's very complicated. I also think the question of, Authenticity and the question of who's allowed to write what are slightly different. Yeah, very intimately related, but but slightly different, right? And I think that like the question of, you know, whether you are colonizing the experience of somebody with less structural power than you—that's always a problem.
0: <laughs> it's true, yes. And collapsing those two things is dangerously stepping into the territory of like whataboutism or like a straw man. Um, but how about memoir, we've been talking about fiction, because that seems to be a kind of different territory, doesn't it, when it comes to deception?
1: Yeah, and I think I care much more about that because it feels more exploitative to pretend to have had an experience that you haven't had, write an entire book about it, and claim that space as a figurehead of whatever the experience is, when it's all an out-and-out pretense, you know? I feel like if, if you want to tell that story and it's not an experience you have had, then write it as fiction and I think the reason that people don't always do that is a very cynical one and it's about money and it's about fame and it's about the fact that often it's easier to get a publishing contract with a memoir because especially in the last kind of I don't know five to ten years this obsession with with authenticity seems to have come even kind of further forward onto the surface I mean I I wonder if it's also a bit to do with the way that Our world has been shaped by things like social media and the fact that we have this kind of direct access into the lives of so many people we never before had. And the fact that authors and artists also are having to sell themselves on those platforms, not just through the medium of their work.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways, like all memoirs or stories that people tell about their life are, contain some element of fiction. You know, how could they not? As soon as we start writing a narrative about something, we're already blurring the boundaries. And, you know, we know how memory works. You've just written a whole memoir. Even when I've been writing little things about my life and things that happened, there's so much that is unclear and unknown, for me at least. I also have a particularly bad memory, but I'm sure that's true <laughs> of other authors. You kind of have to fill in the blanks, but that is not the same time as misrepresenting your life. Full scales so and and it, you're right. It is very cynical and it can be harmful. So I think the best example of this is a memoir called Go Ask Alice, yes. which oh was my God. <laughs> supposedly a memoir by an anonymous teen who like called Alice who falls into drugs and vice in the 60s and suffers for it. And it was actually written by a Mormon housewife as a cautionary tale. And that is harmful, right? That's somebody 100%. pretending that something actually happened. To warn people off, experience and scare them. Yeah, and that's like
1: really sinister agenda.
0: Really sinister. I maybe have a little bit more sympathy for maybe the other most famous case is um, James Frey's "A Million Little Pieces," mm-hmm. which was a memoir about you know this this terrible childhood that he'd had and addiction, and it was you know when people looked into it, basically he'd made up a lot of details of that story. And maybe this is too generous, but I can't just help but think, you know there's a really cynical version of that story, but there's also a version of a story where somebody starts to believe their own self-deceptions. I think even that that kind of hoax, I feel, you know, people exaggerating things about their lives are sometimes coming from a place of lack of self-knowledge rather than, true like cynicism
1: yeah I think there is a really important distinction to be drawn between the meaning of the word fiction and the meaning of the word memoir but I think that at the heart of good memoir writing has to remain truth otherwise it's fiction yeah and you know I often get I like to sort of blur the boundaries of things and of different categories of writing. And I think that writing that does blur those boundaries is really phenomenal, but it's honest about the fact that it's blurring those boundaries. That's what I always want. I want the honesty of the project to be evident and the times that it ruffles my feathers are when it's, there's just a profound dishonesty to it. I think that's where, that's how I would draw those territories. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: That's a good principle to live by honesty.
1: I'm very principled.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but so how about the trope of deception or disguise in novels, getting back to fiction? Why do you think it's an interesting theme to play with?
1: I think because it's a really deep-seated human fear. No one likes to be deceived, right? And it's something that every human being experiences at some point or another because... Human beings are unreliable and we lie to one another all the time. <laughs> Big lies, small lies, you know, lies that have a hugely damaging effect, lies that have barely any effect at all, lies that go undiscovered for entire lifetimes, you know, especially when when people want to make their own lives easier or when people are ashamed of something or when they're trying to manipulate a situation to get what they want you know, show me a human being who says they have never told a lie and I will show you a liar, honestly. (laughs) Um, And I think that's why we're compelled by it, because it's something that is so profoundly human. We all do it. We all know also how hard it is to keep it up. And I think that everyone can understand that to keep a lie up over a long period of time, especially a really, really high stakes lie, is exhausting and kind of impossible. And I think the only people who can do it are so profoundly cold and compartmentalized that they become almost inhuman to us in the, in the story, right? Like the talented
0: Mr. Ripley, those characters. Totally. But as we learned in the movie Liar, Liar, starring Jim Carrey, <laughs> you can't tell the truth all the time, Octavia. We have to lie a little bit. What do you That's mean? I makes take it the so
1: tricky path of absolute cancer, Carrey. <laughs> that is, I am a Vulcan at heart. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, you're so right. I agree with everything you've just said. And I think it's also that extra layer of like fiction itself is already a deception of some kind. Or not a deception, but it's a story. It's made up. It's make-believe. And so when you're writing fiction that is also about lies, it's such a rich rich text. It's like it's referring to itself in a lot of ways. And I think that's what is really special about the Book of Goose. And then finally, I think... something I was thinking related to this was I, there is just a thrill within novels of giving characters an access to a world that they would not otherwise have access to through disguise or deceit. And for some reason, the book that came to mind or the books that came to mind were the series called, uh, the, which was known as the Song of the Lioness, which was like a, a series of YA novels that I read as a kid. Did you come across these? No. Um, about Went into it already. <laughs> this girl named Alana. They're by an author named Tamora Pierce, and she wants to be a knight, and so she dresses up as a boy and goes to like night school. Fabulous. In medieval times, and they are awesome. And what is awesome about this is. You know, it's it's so fun to be in that world, but it's also so fun that the character is, uh, you know, kind of living a lie, and that you're in on it as the reader. And I think there are lots of great stories. I mean, Mulan is basically the, the version of that story too. There are so many great stories like that of where we're following a character into a world so that they must disguise themselves to be a part of.
1: I mean, Shakespeare was the OG, right? Oh, yeah,
0: baby. (laughs) So um, what is your recommendation on our theme today, which is literary deception?
1: Well, I wanted to recommend a play this time called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee. And it was the first thing that sprung to mind because it's about deceit and it's also about humiliation, but it's really also about the psychology of where the compulsion to lie comes from. So the set piece is a straight couple called Martha and George who have a younger straight couple over for dinner and they basically play out the toxic dynamic of their marriage in front of their guests and it gets more and more drunken and more and more extreme and it includes this enormous lie that they have perpetuated for years I'm not going to say what it is you should read the play it's fabulous to read actually as well as to see but anyway this lie comes to a really explosive head that night and I think why I love it is because it actually at the end rips off the facade to show the wound that's usually there at the root of the lie. And it it ends in this very kind of poignant place. I have never read it nor seen it.
0: So I guess I have to. Yeah, you must. What's yours? (laughs) Mine is a novel called The Lying Life of Adults by Elena Ferrante, which we um, we interviewed the translator Anne Goldstein on the show, if you're interested and have not listened yet. But this is a novel about a teenager named Giovanna in 1990s Naples and her basically her entanglement with the affairs of the adults in her life alongside her own personal and sexual awakening so lying is in the title of this novel, and <laughs> <laughs> so it's very appropriate for this theme. But I love the ways in which deceit plays out in every aspect of of the stories. Of course, it's about the lies that the adults in Giovanna's life are telling you know their affairs and and you know deceptions to her. But it's also about the lies she is telling herself, and about the lies that. We're fed from society about how to be and what to do and how we make ourselves. And just these layers and layers of deception that we all have to wade through. And we all have to wade through, especially when we're in our youths and trying to kind of forge our own life as adults. And I at least ended the novel wondering if there's any way that a life can be lived fully truthfully or whether that's even something to aspire to i think in some ways that like ferrante has a very bleak view of this and Mm, definitely I, i really love this novel
1: yeah it's a cracking one
0: We are back with Ian Lee to give our book recommendations, but Octavia, would you like to give yours first?
1: I would love to. I am extremely enthusiastic about this book. Um, it's called Our Share of Nights* by Mariana Enriquez, who's an Argentine writer. Um, and this book is so massive. <laughs> it's a really big, long novel. And um, it was it was a bit daunting when I picked it up and I loved every single page of it. It just completely, completely absorbed me. It's so powerful. It actually gave me nightmares legitimately. Um, and I guess it's kind of being marketed as a horror story, but it is, I think to, to just say that would be to do it a disservice or to make it sound um, like it lacked a certain amount of Emotional depth, which it definitely has. So it's set in Argentina during the brutal decades of the military dictatorship, um, which hums along in the background of the story. But the real focus is about this guy called Gaspar, who's a child at the start of the book and kind of a, a young man by the end, and his father, Juan. And his father has these strange supernatural powers. So he's a medium, he can communicate with the dead. Their lives are littered with dead people because of the dictatorship, but also because they live in this wild community where they are in connection with a mysterious group called the order and the order exploit Juan for his power and it drains him terribly physically and I won't give any more of the plot away because it's important to go in, I think, very fresh with this novel. But I will say that it is just extraordinarily luscious. It's very gory and frightening. It's also really sexy and very, very sensual. It's a real body genre book in general. Uh, It's cinematic. It's also Delightfully rock and roll in places like a cameo from David Bowie happens in 1960s Swinging London, which was a like wonderful discovery. And really, I was compelled by the characters, I was compelled by their relationships to one another. Um, And it's told in a series of different voices at different times. So you feel like you're kind of in communion with a group of characters, which I always really love as a reader. And after I have not really stopped thinking about it since finishing it, you know, it's left me with kind of thoughts and questions about. Authoritarian rule and about authorship and storytelling and like this idea of the family as a rogue state and the violence of privilege, the problem of heredity, like everything, just a lot. There's a lot there, and it's brilliantly translated
0: by Megan McDowell. Wow. Okay. Great. Well, that, that also, sounds amazing. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, could we have your recommendation, please?
2: Yes. So the book I've been thinking about is called The Hero of This Book by Elizabeth McCracken. The book already came out in America and it's coming out in the UK in January 2023. Like anytime you say this is a book about something and then you use that to describe this book, it's becoming the wrong description. So I can give you all the wrong description. It's a book about grief, or it's a book about mother-daughter relationship, or it's a book about an author's introspection. They sound horrible and they sound wrong. The reason is the book, what happens in the book is the narrator is a middle-aged woman who's a novelist, and she just lost her mother. And so she went to she she lost her mother. She went to London to spend a few days by herself, and the entire book is framed by a long walk in London on a specific day. While she was walking, you know, around London, she was observing people, she was interacting with people, And she was also thinking about her mother, her childhood, her upbringing, her work. So in the end, it's a book about a woman mapping out her entire life in her head while mapping out London by foot. So it's not claustrophobic. It's interesting. It's funny. It's sad. It makes you laugh. It makes you cry. And in the end, it makes you feel really close, not only to the mother who already died, but also to the narrator. But it's what makes you feel very close to yourself as a reader. I feel that the book is one of those books that review ourselves to ourselves. So I highly recommend that.
0: That sounds phenomenal. Wow. That sounds wonderful. And I also love the way you pitched it.
2: Oh, thank um, you.
0: <laughs> I'm a literary agent. And I have to pitch books all the time. And that, oh. that gave me a lot of um, oh. ideas. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so... I'm going to recommend The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, which I know is one of the most popular novels in the world right now because of TikTok. Do you two know about this?
2: No. I did not know that. Yeah.
0: Okay. So it's had this a crazy revival Ooh. because people have become obsessed with it on TikTok, even though oh. it was published like 10 years ago or something like that. Fine. So I'm jumping on the bandwagon, but it's a really no- it's a really beautiful novel because Madeline Miller is a very, very good storyteller. So in case you don't know the novel, The Song of Achilles is a retelling of Homer's Iliad, and particularly the story of Achilles, the warrior, and his close companion, Patroclus. And the novel is narrated by Patroclus. And so in the Iliad, Patroclus and, and Achilles are really close and very devoted to each other. And a lot of passages are kind of devoted to their relationship with each other. But obviously, it doesn't outright say they were in a gay relationship. But Madeline Miller chooses to interpret it as such. So they're in a romantic and sexual relationship in this novel. And so it is, she takes this very well known story and she makes it into this beautiful love story and this and this beautiful relationship which is all about longing and desire and you know petroclus's understanding of Achilles who is is this great kind of warrior half God that humanizes the story so much and you know, I think that that humanization, extends beyond just their relationship it extends to everything in the novel you know uh with war with gods and how they live with with just the the things that people do it feels so real and so alive and so beautifully told and i think that is her real gift is taking these myths that you might know the contours of and just filling them out so that they're bursting with life so um if you want a compulsive love story this is it
2: Sounds very good. That's beautiful. Mm. I will tell you, that's my son's favorite book. Really? Really? (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. We have bought many coffees to give to
0: people. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And I feel like it's like, it's a book for a lot of different ages too. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly right. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Ian Lee and to Daphne Carnesis and George Muiris for editing.
1: Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be
0: back soon with another mini Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction. Thank mm-hmm. you.